Alright, if you would, open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 16. And we're going to be studying the second half of Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. And what I'm going to do is that we're going to read through it, then we're going to go back and we're going to break it down. Uh, for those of you that are wondering where Pastor Chris is, uh, him and the entire family, including Luke, who you know has been away at college, had a chance to get away for the weekend, so they're spending some quality time together, so that's a blessing for them. Uh, and for those of you that were praying for us that attended the Pastors and Leaders Conference in Phoenix this past week, thank you for your prayers. It was truly a blessing to get away, to be um, to be taught, to be equipped, to be reminded. The, the theme of the, the conference was prophecy. Uh, there's lots of things going on in our world right now that point to the signs of the times and the end of the age to remind us that Jesus is coming, and He's coming quickly. And so, we want to be ready for that. And so, um, anyway, that's my quick update. I think there was, Carl wanted me to remind you that after service, the prayer room in the back will be open. Uh, if you need some personal prayer, you may talk to someone about something, uh, you can go back there and do that as, as well. And so, let's look at Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It says, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses. And the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And so oftentimes people wonder, What happens when we die? What's next? What happens to people that aren't saved? What happened to people before Jesus died and rose from the grave? Those Old Testament saints. Can a person work their way out of hell? Can a person sin their way out of heaven? So in this study today, Jesus gives us a sneak peek behind the curtain into the next life. And we're able to answer some of these much-asked questions. Uh, this is believed by many to be a real account of two lives. Although some good Bible teachers teach that this is a parable 
I lean on the side of this being uh, a, a real story, a real account of people's lives. One, because we're not told that it's a parable. Oftentimes when Jesus tells a parable, such as in Luke 18, chapter 1, it says, then he spoke a parable to them. So you know it's a parable. Uh, no other parables in the Bible use names, but they say things like this, again from Luke 18. There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came. You don't, you don't get proper names. Here in this account, we get a proper name. So I believe this is, is a real account of two lives that Jesus is giving us. And this morning, if you're here and you do not have a personal relationship with Jesus, please pay attention. Please don't leave here without one. There's nothing, there's no more decision, no more important decision you can ever make than to choose Jesus. So, my exhortation for you this morning would be if you're not right with Jesus, if you haven't asked Him to take over your life to be your Savior, do that today. For the believer that's here, what I want you to do, I want you to think of a loved one, a family member, a friend, co-worker, that you would love to see saved. Maybe you've been praying for them. Maybe they're not saved. I want you to put that person in the forefront of your mind and in your heart. And I want you to know that God desires to see them saved too. That's what the Scripture teaches. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Gospel for Asians, who K.P. Johannan is. But K.P., it might be in his book, Revolution and World Mission, but he has a saying that he talks about, and he says, that he asked God to stamp eternity on the back of his eyelids. So every time he closed his eyes, he would have that thought, that mindset of the eternal. For the lost, that will be going into eternity in hell. For the eternity that the believer will be spending with Jesus. But that would be at the forefront of our mind because the Bible teaches that we are just sojourners who are passing through. This is not our home. Heaven is. And the Bible teaches that we're going to spend eternity in one of two places. Either in heaven, where we'll be with the Lord forever, or in hell, where we'll face eternal suffering. The choice is yours to make. God's done everything possible to provide a way for you to go to heaven. If you don't want to go there, it's not God who sends people to heaven. It's God who made a way for people to not go to hell. And so, if you fail to choose that, the one way that God has provided through Jesus, that's on you. And as we look at this account this morning, we're going to see that there's a man that realizes that it's upon him. He made a mistake. He made the wrong choice. And so, if you're here this morning and anything that I say comes off this morning as a conviction sandwich, please know that it's from the Holy Spirit. It's not from me. My intent is not to make people feel convicted uh, or condemned through this Bible study. Okay? If you're here this morning and this Bible study scares you, 
know that that's not the intention. This is meant to be a warning. The Bible tells us that it's not, it's not the fear of God that causes us to go to heaven, but it's the love of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And I believe it's in God's kindness and in His mercy that He gives us this sneak peek behind the curtain into the eternal so that we can have a more informed decision so that we can choose what we want to do and who we're going to follow. And so, as we think about that, this, uh, let's keep eternity in the forefront of our minds. That person that you've been praying for, that you desire to be saved, have them in your mind. And, and so, Luke chapter 19, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So in this account, we have an unnamed rich man. Some have speculated that if, if you catch the context of the entire chapter, Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders, his disciples, multitudes of people. And uh, just if you look back up to chapter 14, Jesus, I mean, sorry, verse 14, it says that the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things. And these guys, throughout the context of the chapter, Jesus has been talking to them about taking what you have now and using it to set your future in place, to set your, set, use your resources for the kingdom of God. He be, and it talks about how they're lovers of money. And so he's, he's real, they're, they're agitated. It says they're, that they derided him. It, it's literally that they, they turned their noses up to what he was saying. So in, in furtherance of what he's been communicating, he gives a real account of a rich man in Lazarus. And it's been speculated by many, and then speculation is just speculation, but uh, that perhaps there was people there who knew who the rich man was he was talking about. The five brothers. Maybe one of his brothers were sitting there at the table. That there would have been a knowledge of who this man Lazarus was that was laid at his gate every day. And so it could, there's potential that it could have been very real to the, the listener there. And so we, we get this unnamed rich man. We're not told who he is, but we're told a lot of things about him. One, he was rich. He was, what else, clothed in purple. Purple was the, the color of royalty. It was a very expensive uh, colored garment or material to get. They had, the, they had these, like, I think it was worms or something that they would have to get. They would have to, like, crush the worms and the, the guts and everything that came out of that. They would use to dye the garment purple. So it was a process. It was expensive. Uh, it says he was clothed in purple and fine linen. He fared sumptuously. Some translations say that he ate well. And then it says that he, he did it every day. He was living in the lap of luxury. By the world standard, there would be the thought that this rich man, he's got it all. This is the way that I want to be. I want to have everything. I want to live that life. I want to be on, uh, have my house be on cribs and, and all this kind of stuff, right? I, I want to have, uh, maybe that's the date of the reference. 
<laughs> I didn't say lifestyles of the rich and famous. Nobody here knows who Robin Leach is. But anyway, so the guy has everything. You understand what I'm saying? People wanted what he had. There was the idea in that first century Jewish culture that if you lived like this guy, God was blessing you. You were right with God. You had everything. And then there's Lazarus. His name, by the way, uh, that's a, a Greek translation. Uh, his Hebrew name is Eleazar, which means God is my helper. And so Lazarus, this guy's poor. He's destitute. He's a beggar. When it says that he was laid at the gate, the the uh, the language understanding would be like he's literally like dropped at the gate just with the hopes of getting some kind of scraps from this guy's table. Notice what it says about him. He was full of sores. It's hard for us to imagine in our culture this type of poverty. I was talking with Amber and Josh this morning about the about missions and third world countries. That's where you see this type of poverty. Here today in the United States, anybody who's poor, and I'm not poking fun or anything like that, but if you're poor, if you're destitute, you can go to a shelter. You can get food. You can find a shower. You can find a, a place to stay out of the cold. In the, in the biblical culture, in third world countries, they don't have that. You literally are a beggar. You're strapping through trash cans just trying to find a meal. If you have medical conditions like sores and you don't have the money to pay for it, you don't get treated. Here in our culture, they have this thing called Impala, uh, the Emergency Medical Act is something, something the acronym, but Basically, if you go to an emergency room and you're not in a stable condition, they have to treat you whether you have the money or not, and they have to stabilize you before they can release you. That's the law. So, not so in this culture. This guy's got sores. He's desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. So, just to paint a picture for you, those crumbs that they're talking about, the, the wealthy people would use bread as a napkin or a paper towel. And they would eat their food, wipe their hands on it, wipe their face, take that scrap and throw it to the ground. He's like, I want to I eat their napkin, basically. You remember when Jesus, uh, back in Matthew 15, he, he's a, there's a Canaanite woman that comes and she's saying, my daughter is demon-possessed and, and she's tormented by this evil spirit. And the disciples there, they're saying, get rid of her. And Jesus tells her, hey, it's not good that the children's food should be given to the little dogs. And then that's what he's talking about, those, those, the, the napkin, right? Well, she responds to Jesus, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs are fed with the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And he's blown away. He says, oh, woman, as great as your faith, you're, you, go, it's, you're going to have what you want. Your daughter's going to be healed. But that's what she was talking about. The, the, those crumbs, those napkins that get tossed away. This guy's just hoping, can I just get a bite? Imagine the scene. The rich man, every day, he's got to drive the Rolls Royce through the gate past the rich man. He sees them there. If you've ever been to a third world country, the, the disparity between the rich and the poor, there, there's no missing it. You're either rich or you're poor. There's not a whole lot of middle ground. 
the rich are very rich. They live in Beverly Hills-type mansions on a hillside overlooking abject poverty right in front of them. And they pass by it every day, just like this. So, you know, what this guy's desiring to be fed with these scraps. The dogs are there. The, the dogs that are there showing more compassion than the rich man are licking his wounds, his sores. Kind of gross. But that's what was happening. The dogs were coming for the same scraps that this man wanted. Again, by this world standards and by the first century Jewish standards, Lazarus was cursed by God because of how he lived, because of his condition. They believed that God was angry with him or there was a problem in his life. There was some secret sin and God couldn't bless him because of the way that he is. And the rich man, in contrast, who had everything, God, oh, God, is, God is blessing him. But we're going to see from heaven's perspective things were different. And before we go any further, what I want to remind you is this is not about being rich or poor. You can be rich and be saved. You can be poor and be saved. It's not about rich and poor. It's about who your God is. Right? Again, Lazarus was living this hard life, but he was lived a life of faith in God. The rich man was living a life of luxury, but he didn't have faith in God. He was trusting in unrighteous mammon, as Jesus would say. He was putting his trust in his riches, in his friends that told him he's okay. Later on in Luke chapter 18, we get the picture uh, of a Pharisee. It says, he spoke a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, interesting enough, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. But the tax collector raises, he just raises his eyes to heaven. He wouldn't say a word. He beat on his breast. And he just said, God, be merciful to me. And so Lazarus is more in that condition. He's in this position of, I'm trusting God, but it doesn't seem like it to the outside world. The rich man may say, I'm trusting in God, but we're going to learn he wasn't. Verse 22. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. How awesome is that? How comforting is that? Now, his Paul, he, had, he had nobody, nothing, but his pallbearers were angels. That's pretty cool, right? The rich man also died, and I'm sure he had a big funeral. Pomp and circumstance, wailers, pallbearers, a nice tomb to be put in. It says he was buried. But I want to point something out to you. Death comes for everyone. It's the curse. When Adam sinned, the curse of death was applied to mankind. Death comes for rich. Death comes for the poor. The statistics on death are good. There's 100% 
of people will die. The stats don't lie. There's no potion that can cause you to live forever. No workout plan. No facelift. No Botox. No, nothing will cause you to live forever. On this earth, we are all eternal beings. And we go to one place or the other. But on this earth, there's people that are spending all kinds of money trying to figure out how to live forever. You guys heard of cryogenics? Right? People will realize, okay, I have a disease. I'm going to die from that disease. There's no cure. So I'm going to pay all this money to have my body frozen in the hopes that in the future they'll find a cure for my disease. Then they can wake me up, cure my disease, and I can go on living. Guess what? You're still going to die. And also, guess what? It hasn't worked yet. So, But I mean, people are afraid of death. Bible teaches if you have placed your trust in Jesus, there is no fear in death. Perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. God's not given us the spirit of fear, but a power and love and of a sound mind. If you're right with Jesus, you have no reason to fear death. And so, yeah, death comes for all. Rich men die, poor beggars die. I looked up his stats from, and I got them from worldpopulationreview.com. Uh, from 166,279 people die every day. It breaks down, and I didn't do the math, so if it's wrong, complain to the website. But 6,978 people per hour. 115 people per minute. 1.92 per second. If you do that, the numbers over the course of a year at 60,691,835 people per year die. We're all going to die. There's only one generation that's not going to die, and that's the one that hears the trumpet and Jesus says, come up here and we get to go meet Him in the air. And we hope that's all of us. But the reality is that we don't know when our last breath is. God, the Bible says our life is like a vapor, just a puff of air. that It's here and it's gone. God knows how many breaths are already numbered for us. And so, death comes for everyone. Lazarus, this poor beggar who nobody honored, this man was honored by heaven. It's more important to be honored by heaven. The rich man... He was honored by his friends. Not heaven. So it's great. He had a nice funeral. Awesome. They spent a lot of money and they put up a monument. Great. He wasn't honored by heaven. His heart was not right with God. And so, in verse 23 it says, And being in torment, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Notice, there's a, there's a we, we've heard of the Great Reset, right? the, the political thing that is going on. I call this the Great Eternal Reset. 
in the eternal life, there's a reset that took place. Lazarus, who was in misery on earth, is now in a place of comfort, while the rich man who lived in the lap of luxury, he's suffering in a place of torment. He has now become the one who's in poverty, begging, and he's aware of what he's missing out on. So, it brings up some questions. What is Hades? Hades simply is the place of the dead or the grave. Uh, in the Greek, it's referred to as Hades. In the Hebrew, it's referred to as Sheol. You see that in the Old Testament. It seems to be a place of two compartments. Uh, do we have that slide? Can we put that slide up? Uh, there's a place of torment, which also is referred to as Hades, hell. And then there's Abraham's bosom, which is a Hebrew idiom for a place of comfort, a place of rest, also referred to as paradise uh, in the New Testament. Many scholars believe that this place, this Hades, is in the center of the earth. Jesus said, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Where it is exactly, I, nobody really knows. Then, all souls went to one of these two places prior to Jesus' death and resurrection. The, the torment side was not made for man. And you can write these down or you can follow along or look at a few scriptures. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus says, then you will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you curse, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It wasn't made for man. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God doesn't want anyone to go to hell. Okay? So Second, Second Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33.11 says, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I have a hard time when we watch the news and somebody like, say, Osama bin Laden gets killed and you see Christians celebrating. God's not celebrating. I understand the sentiment behind it because of the... The, the problems that have been caused by some of these people, but God's not celebrating their death. I imagine heaven is heartbroken. Remember Jesus standing over Jerusalem, saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you had just known that I wanted to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing to come. God is merciful, but God is also just. He has to be both. And we can't have mercy unless justice has been fulfilled. Justice was fulfilled at the cross. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe, or we owe. But because of that, 
there can be mercy by placing your trust in Jesus. So, the paradise for the Abraham's bosom side was a temporary facility, temporary place, until Jesus rose from the dead. You guys realize that Jesus went to paradise side after He died on the cross and before the resurrection? Some out there wrongly teach, it's bad theology, it's not biblical, that Jesus went to the Hades side or the torment side after He died on the cross where He suffered uh, to atone for the sin of mankind. The problem with that teaching is that it's not biblical. It's wrong. His blood that He shed on the cross is the atonement for sin. It was once for all. He experienced the wrath of God on the cross at Calvary. At the cross, the judgment of God was satisfied. Jesus said to Telestai, it is finished. It's done. Jesus went to paradise the side to accomplish two things. To preach to those who were waiting for the promises of God to be accomplished while at the same time sealing the eternal fate of those who were across the divide. If you look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once, that would be on the cross, for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Can you imagine that scene? Jesus goes to paradise. All those saints who died in faith looking forward to the cross, looking forward to God's promises, all those ones we read about in Hebrews 11 who by faith attained. Jesus, Jesus going there and goes, Guys! Victory! Maybe that, that voice, like the sound of many waters, was, I don't, I mean, picture Niagara Falls talking. I don't know what that would sound like, but like that just booming, like we won. It's done. It's finished. We're getting out of here. We're going to our eternal home. And at the same time, those who were on the other side of the chasm could hear. They were aware. The recognition that their fate was sealed. There's no, I'm not getting out of this place. This guy doesn't seem to have that realization quite yet. Okay, hey, Abraham, send Lazarus over. Let him, I'm I'm in torment in this flame. Just, Just a drop of water would make it better. It's hard to imagine how a drop of water would do anything in that type of environment. I mean, if you've ever been in the desert hiking on a on a hot day, drop a, I don't want a drop of water. I don't want a gallon of water. But this guy's saying, it's, it's like being in a really dark place and even a pinprick of light. You're like, oh, that helps a little bit. I can see something. That's what he's about. Just, just a drop. And then torment. Notice if you read in verse 23 about him, it says being in torment notice it says again we're going to talk about this some more so I don't want to get too much ahead of myself but he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham and Lazarus across that chasm he was aware of what was happening 
where they were compared to where he was. So what's the second reason that Jesus went to paradise and it was to take with him those who were in Abraham's bosom to heaven? So look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. It says, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. Jesus went to take those people waiting in the Abraham's bosom side to heaven with him. Look at Matthew, 25, uh, Matthew 27, verse 51. This one will trip you out. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Notice this. And coming out of the graves, after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when Jesus came back, they went where Jesus was. I think that's pretty awesome. Fifty days later at the day of Pentecost, they all went with Jesus. But kind of an interesting thought, right? Come on, is that you? Where did you come from? What a testimony, right? So, currently on this side of the resurrection, Abraham's bosom is emptied. That part of the, the containment area is emptied. And heaven is being occupied. And really, the heaven that is presently being occupied is only going to get better because God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth that we read about in Revelation, where there's no more remembrance of the former things, where they've all passed away, where every tear has been wiped by the hand of God. If, if a believer dies today, the Bible teaches that they go straight into the presence of God. The Apostle Paul taught, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There is no more waiting area. There is no purgatory you just go straight to the presence of God. So if you've placed your trust in Jesus, that is your hope that you are going to be with Him. It's not a fleeting hope. It's a, it's a solid, going to happen 100%. Put all of your trust in it because Jesus is going to take you where He is. And so, for the choices that we make now have eternal implications. Let's look at uh, verse 25 back in Luke. But Abraham said, remember he's asking, can, send someone down, send someone so they can just give me a, a send a, uh, Lazarus down with some water so he can just put a little bit of water on my tongue. I'm being tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. 
but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. There's been a flip-flop. And besides all this, even if we wanted to, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed. What does fixed mean? This is not like it was broken and they fixed it. Yeah, it's immovable. It can't, it can't be changed. It's fixed. You're stuck. There's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. The eternal reset that we talked about has nothing to do with money, has nothing to do with karma, because it can be easily misunderstood that, oh, you had this in this life, and Lazarus had that. Now karma got you, which that's not how God works. Okay? It's by faith that you are saved through grace, not of works. Being rich doesn't, say, doesn't mean you're going to hell, but Jesus does teach how hard it is for a rich man to go to heaven. Why? Because their trust is in the uncertain riches rather than in the certain God. If all those riches were stripped away, are you okay? Are you still trusting in God? It's a good question to ask yourself. If everything that I have was stripped away like Job, we're familiar with Job, right? He had just about everything taken away. If everything is stripped away, is Jesus enough for me? You say yes, you're you're on the right side. If you say no, is money is money your God? Is stuff your God? Is fame your God? Is power your God? You're serving the wrong God. So this has nothing to do with with money, nothing to do with karma. It has everything to do with faith in God's plan for salvation. And so, question again: Have you placed your trust in Jesus this morning? If you have, you are saying you are saved and by the authority of God's Word, you are going to heaven. Don't say, Pastor Dave told me I'm going to heaven. I'm saying on the authority of God's Word, by your profession of faith in Jesus, you're going to heaven. If your heart's not there, that's between you and God. Notice some... Uh, observations about the eternal state. There's consciousness there. There's senses. He sees. He hears. He talks. He has feelings. He desires things. He has a want. He has a knowledge of his surroundings. He knows where he is. And he also knows where Abraham and Lazarus are. I want to show you a verse that's a good one to write down next to this. Luke thirteen twenty eight. <clears throat> this is where Jesus is talking about the narrow way. And he's talking about those who will come to him and want him to open the door. And they're saying, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. And he'll answer and say, I don't know where you are from. And then you'll begin to say, but we ate within your presence. So we drank in your presence. So we taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I don't know you. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Then verse 28 says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice this. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob 
and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourself thrust out. Those people, I think part of the eternal suffering in hell is going to be the knowledge that you knew what you're missing out on. Or you know what you're missing out on. There's an eternal realization that I saw what was happening there like this man and I can't do anything about the position that I'm in. I'm going to be here in torment for eternity. There's, there's a, in, the, in the eternal state, at least on the, the hell side, there's a flame that causes intense heat, but it doesn't consume. It, he has a glorified body of sorts, one that's fit for suffering for eternity. Whereas those who go to heaven get a glorified body that's fit for the glorious things that are going to take place in heaven and for all eternity. The Bible describes hell as a place of torment, a place of darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place where the worm doesn't die, a place where the smoke of their torment arises forever and ever. In the Greek, it's age upon age. Their positions are fixed. You can't cross from one to the other. You can't work your way out of hell. You can't have somebody else pray you out of hell. If your major decision in this life to not follow Jesus and you go to hell, that's where you spend eternity. Lazarus is in a position of comfort and seemingly unaware of the rich man. And it, it, you, you think, you think how, how in the world can the rich man be aware of Lazarus, but Lazarus seemingly is unaware of the rich man? How, how does that happen? Well, number one, it's not a place of comfort if you have to watch or be aware of people suffering. If you have to know that, oh, this loved one or this person that I, I, I cared about and I shared the gospel, they didn't believe and now I've got to see and know that they're suffering, that's not a place of comfort. Also, when we were at this, this pastor's leaders conference this past week, one of the, the speakers talked about his wife who 10 years ago passed away. And he said as she was nearing death and people were coming to visit her, that she would tell everybody that came and went, like, I'll see you around the corner. Right? And so he said that after she passed away, he was really just struggling with, with she, he knows that she knew Jesus and that she was a believer, but he's just struggling with what, what's going on with her. Like what, you know, and it was something that he wasn't having peace about. And he said he felt like the Lord gave him a dream one night where he saw his wife walking down the street. And, he, and as he sees her walking down the street, she gives him a little wave, and then she went around the corner. And he said he, he took from the Lord that that meant she's no longer concerned about earthly things. Her mind is on eternity and eternal things. And so, Lazarus has gone around the corner. He's, he's seeing something else. His focus is eternity. The rich man... His focus is on, I screwed up. I messed up. I'm not going there. There's nothing I can do. Can you imagine that? 
What a tor- that's, that's probably the worst torment of all. But there's, I can't do anything about it, and I know it. There's no atheist in hell. There, there's no one who's not a believer in hell. They all know that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. This, this place of eternal, this is not the place of eternal torment. That comes later. Read about it in Revelation 19. It's referred to as the lake of fire. The first uh, people to enter into the lake of fire are the beast and the false prophet. And then a thousand years later, after the millennial reign, after a short rebellion, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, Satan is cast into the lake of fire. Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Those whose names are not written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire to a place of eternal torment and suffering. There's, there's some churches out there that teach something called annihilationism. It's a bad doctrine. The Bible doesn't teach it. Annihilationism, if you don't know what it is, it's essentially that when you die, you go to hell, and you're essentially just obliterated. You just don't exist anymore. That's a nice thought. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches a place of eternal suffering. There's some groups out there that teach that I can, if I'll go to hell for a little bit and then I can work my way out of there, then I'll go to heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's some that teach that there's no hell at all. You just die and you come back as something else. Those are all really nice thoughts that kind of ease our conscience, but that's not what the Bible teaches. That's why, like K.P. Johannes said, God, that you would stamp eternity on the back of my eyelids. All that, those statistics that I gave you earlier. People are dying every day. What, let me, what was the statistic that? 6,978 people in an hour. While we're sitting here in church, that many people are potentially taking the plunge into hell. That's a, that's a, uh, for the believer that's here this morning, that should wake us up. That we would live our lives in such a way that people see Jesus. We should be willing to share the Gospel with people. Let's look back at verse 27. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my Father's house. For I have five Brothers, that he may testify to them. You can't give me water. Well, then, fine. Take Lazarus and send him back to my family and tell them that this place is real, that it exists. I don't want them to come here. Our hearts should break now. He says, I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. His concern for the eternal life has come too late. Jesus teaches over and over again to be ready, to be prepared, to, in the context of the chapter, to take what you have now and use it for the kingdom of God. Storing up treasures where moths and rust and thieves don't 
destroy it. His concern for the lost is too late. People in hell are the greatest evangelists that's ever lived, but they can't do anything about it. Except, please, please, send somebody back. Too late. What we do now in our life today affects the eternal. This guy is saying, just send Lazarus back. If this guy from the dead goes back, his personal testimony will be enough. His personal testimony will, will, will save them. There is a, an important part of our personal testimony. Do you know your testimony? Do you know what a testimony is? It's what you were before you were saved, how you came to know Jesus, how He rescued you, and what's going on in your life now in Christ. Everybody, and I challenge every one of you that's a believer here this morning, know how to give your testimony in five minutes. Can you do it in five minutes? People don't want to sit there for a half hour and listen to your whole story about how you're sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and you did this, that, and everything. Get to the point. Tell them, I was, I, was, I, was, I was lost, but now I'm found. If you can't do that, invite them to church. You can do that. Give them one of those little cards that are out here that says, come to church. Know your testimony, share your testimony, and then this, tell your, like the, like the demoniac that we read about in Mark chapter 5. He, he just got saved. He was a demon-possessed wild man. He got saved. He wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says, no. He says, just go back to your friends and family and tell them what great things God has done for you. We can all do that. Here's another one. Can I share the gospel? Do you know what the gospel is? Do you know, can you share it with the person in the line at the grocery store, with a coworker, with family, with friends, whoever? You don't have to be weird about it. Just let God supernaturally, naturally open the doors. And when you have an open door, go through it. How do you share the gospel? What is the gospel? Jesus came from heaven to earth. He died on the cross so that all of your sin can be forgiven if you will place your trust in Him. On the third day, He rose again from the dead, proving that He was who He said He is. And if you place your trust in Him, your sin can be forgiven. doesn't matter what it is. Anything. He'll forgive it all. That's so refreshing. People want that. Again, I'm not intending for this to be a conviction sandwich for you. We've all had those experiences where you know God is putting it on your heart to share the gospel with somebody. And you're just like, oh, no, I'm not here, Lord. I mean, this is a really awkward spot. And I've got the dental hygienist in my mouth. How am I supposed to talk? I can't do it. Right? Like, I, if you missed an opportunity, God's gracious. Just say, Lord, I'm sorry I missed that one. Please give me another opportunity. Verse 29. Abraham said to him, uh, worship teams, you guys want to come up? Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. You know what's ironic? Is that in a few chapters, Jesus comes back from the dead. And you know what they did? They made up a story. And they paid people off to say that he didn't rise from the dead, that his body was stolen by his disciples. In, in John chapter 12, a different Lazarus is brought back from the dead after four days. You know what they tried to do to him? They plotted to kill him to cover up the evidence. They, didn't, they wouldn't believe someone who comes back from the dead. The Word of God is, is and has all that we need. That's what's being communicated. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, let them hear the Scriptures that testifies of Jesus. Jesus said the whole volume of the book speaks about me. And he was talking about the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't around yet. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Romans 10.17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Guys, this is something that we can't do on our own. I've been challenging all morning to share the Gospel, to know your testimony, to make sure that you're right with Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not right with Jesus, but you feel something tugging at your heart, that is the Holy Spirit. He's been called in times past the hound of heaven. He won't leave you alone. Why? Because God doesn't desire that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance in the knowledge of the truth. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. So if you're not a believer and you feel that tug, that's the Holy Spirit. That's God saying, come on, I'm calling you. And for those of us that we need to be out there and sharing or we need to have eternity set in our mind and we need to be praying for those, that is also an act of the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us. But we need an outpouring of the Spirit in our lives. We need to not be just filled and getting filled and getting filled. We need an outflow. And, and that's what's, what's called the FP experience, the overflow of the Holy Spirit coming forth in our lives. We need Him in order to do this. And it doesn't matter if it's someone in the grocery store or the dental hygienist or a family member. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when you feel the Holy Spirit prompting you, you just say, Lord, help, and you open your mouth. Bible teaches don't worry about what you're going to say in those kind of times. It, the Holy Spirit will fill it. That's why it's important to, I just said a verse, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. It's important that you're in the Word of God. Not only does it build your faith, but if you're putting stuff in. It's like eating, right? Sometimes when you eat, you got Taco Tuesday, and you're like, oh man, I love tacos. And you're like just chowing down on tacos. This is the best thing I've ever had. Other days, it's kind of like yeah, it's oatmeal. Yeah, not that fun, right? But yeah, it's getting the energy for the day. It's fuel. But what happens is that sometimes you'll come across somebody and you'll start talking to them about the Lord and all of a sudden this obscure verse or scripture comes to mind. Why? Because you put it in. And the Holy Spirit can bring it to remembrance. If you don't put it in, there's no remembrance. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. 
need to have eternity stamped on the back of our eyelids. We need less of us and more of Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You this morning for our time together. Thank You for Your Word that is challenging to us, Lord. And it calls, about, calls us out of a stagnant life. You desire for us to be not only hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. We thank You that You are so merciful and so gracious that You would even give us away. That's the bigger question, the bigger miracle. Why would a righteous and a holy God desire to give us away at all? But You did. You love us. That's what Your Word teaches. And so I pray this morning that, that, Lord, that You would just do a work in each one of our hearts that You would cause us to have a desire and a heart for the lost that we wouldn't be irritated and aggravated by the things that the world does. But it would, it would drive us to our knees. This morning, while we're here in this attitude of prayer, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, we've talked about it a lot this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to respond, to get saved this morning. It's not the prayer, the words that come from your mouth, it's the attitude of your heart. But I'd love to lead you in a prayer as a jumping off point this morning where you can know that today was the day that I got saved. So that's you here this morning. Jesus, raise up your hand. Raise it up so I can see it. Don't leave here without Jesus. Anyone at all. One other thing, while we're praying here, we talked about the need for the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that if we ask the Father to give us the Holy Spirit, that He would give it. And so this morning, if you're in need of a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, again, would you raise your hand so we can pray? Don't be shy. I see hands. I see hands going up in the back. I see here in the middle. Awesome. Anyone at all while the Spirit's moving before we pray? Anyone else? Father, we just pray this morning that you would rain down the Holy Spirit on this place. For those that have specifically asked for a filling of the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would you would give liberally this morning. That there would be that empowering to do the things that your word says apart from you. We can do nothing. We need you, Jesus. And so I pray for myself, for those who have raised their hands, that God, you would fill us to a place of overflowing. And we thank you for that, that filling and, and trust, how you're going to use that in the upcoming days and weeks ahead. Lord. And God, I pray that on our own, we wouldn't wait to come to church to ask, but we know that we can ask every day any time of the day.
Lastly, while we're here this morning, I asked you before we started, really before we started, to think of a loved one that you had in the forefront of your mind that's not saved. Everybody got it? You got that thought in your head? You know, as, as I pray, I want you to pray. Don't, don't repeat my prayer, but just pray in the quietness of your own heart for that person, those people that God will touch their heart. Father, we do pray for those lost friends, family members, co-workers. We pray that, God, this morning that you would just be stirring the heart of those people. That, that you would send your Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. We pray that for each each person here that has someone in mind, Lord, that you would you would just direct and orchestrate a conversation or a phone call or or something, God, please to open the door so there would be salvation. I pray that. As you said, say it in a chapter over, Lord, that men everywhere always ought to pray and not lose heart. God, keep us from losing heart as we pray for those lost family members and friends and family. Thank you that it is your desire that men would be saved. God, blow us away in the upcoming weeks as we hear the testimony of these people who are saved. In Jesus' name, amen.